As we've been looking at 2 Samuel, hopefully one thing that's becoming clear is that the Bible is one book. I realize that might sound obvious. Of course it's one book. But in practice, it's easy for you and I to begin thinking of it as two books. There's a New Testament which focuses on Jesus and which is set in a time not exactly the same as ours, but not massively different from ours. And then there's the Old Testament, which doesn't mention Jesus, at least not by name, and which is set in a time that often sounds like another planet to us. People do the most unusual and the most gruesome things in the Old Testament. It's like the Wild West to us. So yes, we all agree in theory that the Bible is one book, but it's easy to treat the Old Testament as some strange thing that really has very little to say to us. But hopefully looking closely at 2 Samuel helps to change our opinion of the Old Testament. Hopefully we can see, while the world of the Old Testament is often strange to us, The God of the Old Testament is the same God we meet in the New Testament. The promises we see fulfilled in the New Testament are promises made in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we get a taste of what God's going to do through Jesus. That's certainly the case with our passage this morning. It comes after one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. In chapter 7, God promised to make David's name great. David was already the king of Israel. But God promised to bless his kingdom. And then God pointed to an even greater kingdom still to come. It would come through one of David's descendants. That promise from God came at the start of chapter 7. Then last week, we looked at David's response to God's promise. And now we are shown how God kept his promise. 2 Samuel chapter 8 shows God delivering the promised kingdom. And this kingdom is a picture of the future kingdom of Jesus Christ in many ways. If you haven't found it yet, it's on page 311 in the church Bibles or page 479 in the large print. And I'm going to read the whole of chapter 8. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Amma from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down in the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the river Euphrates. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. 
when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Berathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Tu, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tu. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Alihud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelathites. And David's sons were priests. This is God's word. What we have in this chapter is a summary of David's reign. This is not a year in the life of David. It's not six months in the life of David. It's an overview. The events in this chapter cover his whole reign. Some of the things mentioned in passing here are dealt with in detail later in the book. And the reason these things are collected together here is to show how God kept his promise to David. In chapter 7, we heard God's promise. Now here's evidence of how God fulfilled that promise. And as we go through this, we are seeing a foretaste of how God will fulfill his promise perfectly through King Jesus. Verses 1 to 6 give us a first characteristic of God's kingdom. It's the place of salvation for God's people. Now, as we read this, you will have noticed there is some shocking stuff here. At least, I hope you find it shocking when we read it. But before we get to that, look down to the end of verse 6. This gives us the main point of verses 1 to 6. The NIV says, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Literally, the text says, the Lord saved David wherever he went. That's significant. That tells us this is not about David seeking out 
poor, defenseless nations and stomping on them just for the fun of it. No. Verses 1 to 6 are a record of God saving his people. Saving his people from the enemies that wanted to stomp on them. Earlier this morning we paused to remember those who died fighting in our armed forces. Remembrance Day is not about glorifying war. It's about giving thanks for those who valued our freedom enough to fight for it. Remembrance Day reminds us where there are enemies, sometimes there must be war. If there's going to be freedom and peace, sometimes there must first be war. In the world wars, British soldiers fought our enemies to save us from our enemies. And of course, we might disagree and want to debate over some of the tactics and some of the results, but that was the reason they fought to save us from our enemies. And it's the same here. Remember what God promised back in chapter 7. He said to David, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. Israel was surrounded by wicked people who wanted to oppress Israel. Here in our passage, verses 1 to 6 describe God saving Israel. And that salvation came by defeating those wicked people. If we plot these victories on a map... It looks like this. The colored areas you can see are already occupied by the 12 tribes of Israel. But the Philistines were to the west of Israel. Moab was to the east. Hadadezer and the Arameans were to the north. And later in the passage, Amalek and Edom are to the south. Those were all hostile nations. They were all intent on oppressing Israel. But God brings, as you can see, a comprehensive salvation to Israel on all sides. And that salvation for Israel means the destruction of Israel's enemies. Thousands upon thousands of them. And we can ask, does this have any relevance for the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Well, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, that book describes the return of Jesus Christ. He's pictured there as a rider on a white horse, a king leading an army. Revelation tells us the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the white horse and his army. But those enemies were killed with the sword of Christ the King. The Bible gives a consistent picture of God's kingdom. 
It means salvation for God's people. Safety from their enemies. And that means destruction for those enemies. The coming of God's kingdom is a wonderful thing for those who submit to God's king. It will be a terrible thing for those who oppose God's king. If there's going to be freedom and peace, sometimes there must first be war. That point applies to God's kingdom just as much as any other kingdom. That's the big point of verses 1 to 6. And now let's see some of the details. And the first detail that jumps out at us is the way David deals with the Moabites in verse 2. Let's look at it again. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down in the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death. And the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Just in case that's not clear, David executed two-thirds of the captured Moabite soldiers. He let one-third go free. And it seems he decided randomly who died and who lived. The length of the rope decided. And so what are we to make of this? Well, here are two points for you to be aware of. First of all, you'll notice the text does not comment on what David did. It doesn't say what he did was bad. It doesn't say it was good. The writer of, first, of Second Samuel doesn't tell us what he thinks about this. He doesn't tell us what we are supposed to think about it. This book as a whole gives us a warts and all picture of King David. The writer does not try to convince us everything David did was good. And so when we read how he deals with the Moabites, we do not have to assume it's a good thing. We don't have to try and defend what David did here. But having said that, a second point to be aware of is this. David fought his wars by the standards of his day, not by the standards of our day. And believe it or not, by the standards of his day, what he did here would be considered lenient. All captured troops were considered fair game for execution. The fact that David let one-third of them go, well, that would have been seen as somewhat merciful. And then the next question for us to ask is, does this incident with the Moabites teach us anything about God's kingdom? And the answer is, yes, it does. We've seen we don't have to defend what David did here. But whatever his thinking was, he is still demonstrating a kingdom truth. I am not trying to say David was intentionally trying to teach about the kingdom of God, but this incident does teach us. The New Testament tells us the whole of humanity is born in a position of rebellion against God. 
Every man, woman, and child is born an enemy of God. God would be fully within his rights to destroy every single one of us. He's the king. He is worthy to be the king. And yet all of humanity is born defying his rule. He could legitimately destroy us all. And yet, he shows mercy to some of us. Not because of anything good that he sees in us. Not because of any worthiness on our part. No, while we are still enemies, he saves us just because of his own choice. This is how God puts it in the book of Romans. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God's saying, I don't have to show mercy to any. But according to my own free choice, I will show mercy to some. When it comes to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we all start out on the enemy side. It's pure mercy that God saves any of us. None of us start out among his people. None of us are born Christians. We become Christians when God opens our eyes to see our rebellion and to realize Jesus is our only hope of forgiveness and life. And we bow the knee then to King Jesus. So when we think of God's kingdom, it's the mercy and salvation that should surprise us, not the destruction. As the list of David's victories goes on here, we're introduced in verse 3 to Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He operated to the north of Israel. And his name means, Hadad is my help. Hadad was a pagan god. But in the face of God's promise to David, Hadad is no help to Hadadezer. We're told in verse 4, David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Apparently, Hadadezer was not only relying on his god Hadad. He's built up a pretty formidable fighting force, masses of chariots. And to put his war machinery in perspective, at this stage in history, Israel didn't have any chariots at all. But David's God brings salvation despite Hadadezer's chariots and horses. Commentators tell us that hamstringing the horses was done to make sure they couldn't be used as war horses again. They could still work, apparently, as farm horses, but they would no longer have the speed for war. David is making sure his enemies can't rise up again later and use their war machinery against him again. So far, Hadad has been no help to Hadadezer. His horses and chariots have been no help. 
But now, verse 5, the Arameans of Damascus come to help. And they're defeated too. The message here is nothing can help God's enemies. Not human allies, not the latest war machinery, and not other so-called gods like Hadad. None of it can prevent the true God bringing salvation for his people. That applied in David's kingdom, and it certainly applies in Christ's kingdom. The book of Romans assures us when we come willingly under the rule of King Jesus, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No human power, no human weapon, and no rival spiritual power. And we've seen here the salvation from Israel's enemies didn't happen all at once. And it's not going to happen all at once for us either. But it will happen. God's kingdom is the place of eternal salvation for God's people. The nations around Israel were not just hostile. In many cases, they were also wealthy and prosperous nations. And one of the big questions of the Old Testament is, why do the wicked prosper? Why do things often seem to go so well for them? Why are they able to pile up wealth and glory for themselves? Well, so often God's kingdom just seems pathetic. God's people seem to be going without. Why? That's an equally big question today. And here in our passage, in this preview of Christ's kingdom, we have an answer to our question. The prosperity of the wicked is a temporary thing. In the end, God's kingdom will be seen to be the place where all glory and splendor belongs. Look again at verse 7. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Barathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Tu, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. All this wealth, that had been accumulated by God's enemies. All of this glory and prosperity. It all finds its way into David's kingdom. And that's the promise of Christ's kingdom. In the end, it will not be those outside of the kingdom who prosper. It will be those inside. Long after David's kingdom had gone, through the prophet Isaiah... God pointed forward to his eternal kingdom. And he described it like this. 
To you, the riches of the nations will come. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. That was the promise. And after the birth of Jesus Christ, God gave a sign that Jesus was the king of this eternal kingdom. Matthew tells us that magi from the east came to worship Jesus. They traveled a great distance to find this new king. And Matthew tells us, on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At his birth, Christ received a little token of the wealth of the nations. A little sign of what's to come. And the book of Revelation gives us a picture of that future reality. Christ's eternal kingdom is described there as a city. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. David's kingdom gave us a foretaste of it. Isaiah prophesied the fullness of it. Jesus received a token of it at his birth. And one day you and I will experience the reality of it. If Jesus is our king. And we might say, okay, well that sounds good, but what do you mean? What does the Bible mean? Is it telling us heaven's going to be full of gold shields and bronze and frankincense and myrrh and pounds and euros and dollars? Is Donald Trump's yacht going to be docked in heaven? What does it mean to bring the wealth of the nations into God's kingdom? Surely the point is this. Think of all the stuff that impresses you today. All of the wealth and glory of this world. All the stuff that, if you're honest, you wish you had. All the stuff you secretly get jealous about when you see other people having it. Think of all the ways God's enemies seem to glow with success and honor. Pile all of that up in your mind and then realize they can't keep it. One day, whatever amount of glory it adds up to, it will all be gathered up and restored to its rightful owner. The glory will return to God. Today, there are plenty of little human kingdoms personal ones as well as national ones, all of them trying to cling to a piece of the glory that belongs to God. But one day, all of that glory will be seen to be his. All the true wealth will be seen to be in his kingdom. It will finally be obvious that outside his kingdom, there's no glory. 
There's no real prosperity. Today, that is far from obvious. But here in David's kingdom, we have a little preview. As we see the glory of other kingdoms giving way to the glory of Israel. Here, this is just a local thing. But one day, the Bible promises it will be a worldwide thing. So do not be fooled when you see the wealth and splendor of the nations. Their glory isn't going to last. The only true glory belongs to God's kingdom. Don't get sidetracked into chasing glory outside of his kingdom. If you do, you'll end up missing the glory of the kingdom. God's kingdom is the place where all glory and splendor belongs and it lasts in his kingdom. It's also the place of justice and righteousness. Verse 15, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were priests. The two key words here are the words just and right in verse 15. In fact, those are key words in the Old Testament. They are used to describe the character of God himself. In Psalm 36, David says to God, your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice is like the great deep. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, I am the Lord who exercises justice and righteousness on earth. And here in Israel, 1,000 years before Jesus, God is exercising his justice and righteousness on earth through David, God's anointed king. We're seeing here that God's kingdom, ruled by God's king, is the place of justice and righteousness. And if we wonder exactly what justice and righteousness are, the idea is not that they are two separate things. What's being described here is justice that is righteous. A whole lot of what passes for justice in this world isn't really justice at all. But justice that is righteous means justice that truly puts things right. Now, we are not being told that David ruled perfectly. We're being told that on the whole, David's reign was conducted with justice that puts things right. I mentioned earlier, this book is not interested in trying to whitewash David's reign. It's not interested in encouraging us to worship David as if he's a perfect hero. Just wait to the second half of the book and that will be very, very clear. 
The point here is that in general, David did what God's king was supposed to do. David's kingdom was not the ultimate demonstration of God's rule. If it had been, there wouldn't have been any need for God's son to come and set up his kingdom. But still, David's reign is a foretaste of God's rule. And we're being shown how David went about reigning with justice that puts things right. He begins to bring order to his kingdom. He appoints Joab over the army. And whatever question marks we have about Joab, because we've heard of him before, whatever question marks we might have, he was obviously very good at his job. All the victories we've read about prove that. We're told Jehoshaphat was recorder. That probably means he kept official records for the kingdom. So things were organized and they didn't get overlooked or forgotten about. Zadok and Abimelech oversaw worship in the kingdom. Sariah was secretary. That's probably the equivalent to our secretary of state. And all of this seems so natural to us. But this is a different world from the days of Saul's reign, just a few years before. Under Saul, Israel had been a place of chaos. But David works to organize things so that his kingdom runs smoothly. So that all the people benefit from justice that puts things right. Verse 18 mentions the Carathites and Pelathites. Later in the book, we'll learn these guys are David's personal bodyguards. And we're told David's sons were priests. You'll notice this is separated, a few lines, from the mention of Zadok and Ahimelech, the priests. So it may be David's David's sons were not official priests. He may simply have made sure they were well-educated in God's law and they helped with worship. In any case, these last three verses of chapter 8 give us a picture of an organized kingdom. There's order. And that order is used by the king not to control and oppress his people, No, the order serves David's aim to do what is just and right for the people. And if David's imperfect kingdom could get so much right, how much more can we expect from King Jesus? In the New Testament, he is described as the righteous one. And before Jesus' birth, long before it, The prophet Isaiah prophesied this about him. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 
The kingdom of Jesus Christ is the place of perfect and eternal justice that puts things right. So when you and I see injustice today, and when we see evil and all of the wrongs that plague our world today, when we see those things, let's remember, the only true answer is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are plenty of things you and I can do to help, to improve justice here and now, and relieve oppression in different ways here and now. But let's always be clear, the greatest thing you and I can do to help is to share the gospel. The good news that God's kingdom has arrived in Jesus. We can enter that kingdom through faith in Jesus. And when he returns, all wrongs will be put right. We will see something we have never seen before. We'll see a reign of perfect justice, a reign of perfect splendor, safe from all enemies. And whether those enemies are other human beings like they were here for David, or whether those enemies come in the form of sickness or circumstances, one day every last enemy will be destroyed. So in the meantime, let's refuse to be daunted by our enemies. Let's refuse to be dazzled by the wealth and glory of this world. And in our own particular situations, let's commit to doing what's just and right. Let's be honest at work and at school. If we have any kind of position of authority, let's be fair to those who are under our authority. Let's show the people who know us being part of God's kingdom makes a difference in our lives. And when we have the opening, let's tell them the good news. They can be part of the kingdom too. They can serve the king who's going to put all wrongs right. We want to respond to what we've heard in God's word. And the next song we're going to sing helps us to do that. Two songs, actually. So let's respond to what we've heard as we sing, first of all, hear the call of the kingdom. And then there is a higher throne. the call of the kingdom lift your eyes to the king let his song rise within you as the fragrant offering of how god rich in mercy came in christ to redeem all who trust in his unfailing grace Hear the call of the kingdom to be children of light 
With the mercy of heaven, the humility of Christ, walking justly before him, loving all that is right, that the life of Christ may shine through us. King of heaven, we will answer the call, we will follow, bringing hope to the world, filled with passion, filled with power to proclaim, 